You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. This is episode number 251. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you'd like to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about selling mushrooms in Vancouver, legalization in Virginia, the federal medical cannabis research bill, shenanigans at the Cochillan Business Park, New York's cannabis education program, a South Carolina legislation update, new security rules in Denver, a Los Angeles ballot initiative to lower taxes, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? So mine's coming from uh, Kate Masters over at Virginia Mercury. Adult-use cannabis still isn't legal in Virginia, and medical patients face access challenges. Adult-use is legal in Virginia, so why are citizens still having to buy it illegally? Access. In February, in February, Virginia's Republican-led House of Delegates killed legislation that would allow limited retail sales this year, giving trappers a healthy boost in power to do what they do best. Even though voters decided for it last year, legal retail is not said to open in the Old Dominion until sometime in 2024. And if things work out politically the way we know that they most likely will, products may not even show up for months or even years later, says Normal's J.M. Padini, who's quoted in the article. This leaves their medical program as the lone path for legally acquiring product if you can't grow it yourself. According to the Commonwealth's Board of Pharmacies, Uh, There's currently 47,000 registered patients in Virginia compared to a population of 8.6 million. Padini says it's growing, but there are 
structural barriers holding it back and medical cannabis hasn't gained much traction. Advocates say that the problem's registration requirements for both providers and patients who frequently face lengthy wait times to legally purchase. Delegate uh, Don Adams of Richmond, a Democrat, is also a nurse practitioner registered with the state's uh, with the state to certify patients. She said, our process is slow. In terms of the full process to get a card, historically, it's been difficult. People can't just access cannabis after an appointment the way you could any other medical product in Virginia. So let's take a look at that three-step process. First, you got to obtain a written certification from a registered practitioner, a doctor, a physician assistant, or a nurse practitioner, um, attesting that you would benefit from the drug. Second, you have to register with the Board of Pharmacy and wait for approval there. This is the longest step. Per the article, uh, practitioner enrollment in the program has traditionally been slow in many major hospital systems, including Bon Secours, uh, Centara, and UVA Health, still outright forbid their providers from offering certifications or only allow cannabis in narrow circumstances such as clinical trials or treatment-resistant seizures. Currently, there's 703 registered practitioners out of 41,544 eligible across the state. Patients have to create profiles and register through the Department of Health Professions Provider Licensure Portal, um, a non-user-friendly process that many struggle to navigate. There's also a $50 fee minimum and multiple documents required as well. After recently reporting a backlog of 8,000 applications, Board of Pharmacy spokesperson Diane Powers says it's working diligently to process all completed applications within 60 business days of receipt. Sure they are. Third step, finding a dispensary. After months of waiting uh, for full state approval, you have to submit the same documentation to a dispensary before waiting for their approval process yet again, which varies from hours to days depending on the location. Per the article, earlier this year, Virginia lawmakers approved board-requested legislation removing patient registration requirement, allowing medical users to purchase from dispensaries as soon as they receive written provider uh, certification. But the bill still hasn't been signed by Governor Glenn Youngkin. Even if he gets around to it, finding a dispensary is another challenge for newly legal medical patients. With only 11 open across the entire Commonwealth, your options are limited. The area where I grew up, Fluvanna County, it lies in the middle of a weed desert. Located in one of Virginia's health service areas, a large mass of land in central Virginia between Winchester and Charlottesville um, that doesn't have any licensed processors as a result of ongoing legal battle that's also pointed out in this article. Um, But Let's say you make it through all of that bullshit and you finally get to a legal pot shop. You think shit's sweet? Think again. You've already spent between $100 and $150 for a written certification just to find out Virginia products cost double what they do in other markets, including neighboring Washington, D.C. Why would you even go through all of that when you can easily find cheap, unregulated, high-potency products easily at health and wellness shops across the state? You probably wouldn't. The trap will never die. This is Rico Lamite, the dopest dad on the street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear what everybody else has to say about this. Shout out to Virginia. Thank you for bringing this story, Rico. I mean, this to me is so is ridiculous for patients. It doesn't seem like it's something that's even possible. It's really sad, honestly. But thank you for sharing it and breaking it down so well. Yeah, yeah. Really good job. It sounds um, easier still to your cannabis there than Alabama, which wants to require negative pregnancy tests for women of childbearing age. So damn it, that that still sounds harder to me. Protect the children. 
it's so on the nose, you know, it's just like these Republican states, led states, just make it as difficult as possible. Of course, they're, make, it's, they're making all these um, hoops that everybody has to jump through. Just You see it all, throughout the South and everywhere else. It's just, a, you know, ad nauseum. It's just, I mean, you want people to do the right thing. You want them to follow the rules, but you really don't. <laughs> you really don't. You're going to increase uh, uh, enforcement forcing a lot of these people to go back underground and you're forcing a lot of medical patients to get their medicine from untested sources and yeah, just make it as hard as possible make it as difficult as possible what do you expect yeah well i mean i mean in, in all fairness you know i'm not really trying to stick up for virginia because i do think this is kind of a draconian policy but at the same time it is better what they had before which was absolutely nothing so hold on steps. hold on it, it is is not because before the Republican regime took office, they were going to legalize. They were going to legalize retail this year. They moved it up. They were never going to do that. They might have postured that they were going to do that, but they never had the infrastructure in place to adequately actually do that. Rico got it right. They turned it. Youngkin turned it around. That's BS. I, I'm not buying that hype, bro. It's it's, it's, it's in the. In every fucking news outlet. I mean, it's just, and it's just all the like, Republicans just, came in there and they said, no, we can't do that. It's just like New and they Jersey, it though, bro. It's just like New Jersey. Yeah, we're going to we're going to have adult use sales next month. And then they keep on pushing it back and pushing it back and pushing it back. You can't speak in hypotheticals, man. What happened happened. Republicans came in and they stopped the progress. Right. You can't say like, oh, it would have happened this way. It didn't happen that way. Republicans came in there and they stopped the fucking process. Simple as that. And Youngkin has a has a bill on his desk uh, to stop all these uh, crazy requirements to get medical uh, patients what they need, and he refuses to sign it. That's Republicans. That's Republicans doing this shit in this fucking state. It's, it's not no hypothetical. Oh, it would have happened this way if the Democrats were still there. Like, not. Nah, it didn't happen. They're out of they're out of office. You got to talk about right now. Jason, this is for you. You are fake news. Just kidding. Let's keep moving. I am up the truth. <laughs> up Okay, freedom. Up next is co-producer Jason Beck. His provocative spin keeps the show popping. He's been proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since starting his first store in San Francisco. His Midas Touch is going to take the State of Cannabis News Hour to the next level. What's your headline today, Jason? Oh, yeah. Good morning, Susan. Happy Tuesday, everybody, where my story comes out of Capitol Hill where the U.S. House of Representatives passes a medical marijuana research bill. That's right. Yesterday, U.S. House of Representatives passed on Monday, April 4th, a bipartisan marijuana research bill that would remove barriers to conducting research on cannabis and allow scientists to access cannabis from dispensaries of legal cannabis states. Representative Earl Blumenauer, my good buddy Democrat, introduced the bill in October of 2021, and it's co-sponsored by 11 representatives, both Democrats and Republicans, including Representative Andy Harris, a Republican known as legal marijuana's foe, but recognizes that science needs to needs to do more cannabis research. The bill would ease the process by which researchers apply for approval to study cannabis by ensuring a sufficient supply of cannabis intended for research and placing deadlines on federal agencies to consider applications on time. Furthermore, it would also authorize scientists to access flowers and other products manufactured according to state-approved marijuana programs and shelved in dispensaries. Among the bill's co-sponsors, you have Morgan Griffith, Republican. He tweeted this, I am glad House passed our bill today, and I hope this common-sense change to the law will continue to advance. 
In a tweet, David Joyce, Republican, said, for the sake of patients across the country and the USA's uh, medical superiority across the globe, we can't allow outdated federal policy to keep obstructing legitimate medical research. There you guys go. Some Republican positive comments, you guys. Still today, the only legal producer of cannabis for research in the U.S. is the University of Mississippi, which grows cannabis with a THC level below the average uh, adult cannabis, according to an article by the Science Magazine. No clinical studies have been conducted on cannabis products purchased from the state-authorized dispensaries, and most studies on the therapeutic effects of cannabis have relied on synthetic formulations of specific cannabinoids, such as THC or CBD. The NIDA uh, dominates cannabis research funding. It spent over $1 billion with a B in cannabis research funding between the year 2000 and 2018. And just as a FYI, because I know everyone is wondering what the vote count is, H.R. 5657, which is this bill, Medical Marijuana Research Act, passed by a vote of 343 to 75 on Monday. And uh, I actually spoke with my work wife out in D.C., Amy, uh, who is the person that is behind this bill. And she gave me a little small little baby quote. And she says that you can let her know, let them know that Amy says that we're looking forward to a good conference. And she's already had talks with, with, with senators as with the house, both yesterday to make sure, ensure this bill is going to pass and move forward in the bill signing process. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the state of cannabis news hour. Good morning. This is great news, Jason. Thank you for bringing this story. Finally, hopefully, President Biden will sign this. There's no reason not to. It's just about research. And we can have more meaningful research because it is, it's what the people are using. So we don't have to think about synthetics, toxins, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be much more beneficial to everyone that we have access to the products that people are using in dispensaries. Dr. Felicia, I knew you were going to love this story today. Are we concerned at all that on a federal level we're going to uh, just legalize medically and then end up rescheduling to a Schedule 2? No, that's not even a reality. If we rescheduled to Schedule 2, it would immediately go into the hands of the pharmaceutical industry and everyone that has a cannabis business would be SOL because the FDA would have jurisdiction and every single cannabis product on our shelves would be considered an adulterated product by the FDA. Well, Follow the money, it. though. That's what I don't know. I'm worried about that. Follow the money. They have the biggest money. It seems. I'm not. I'm not worried yeah, about that. That's yes. not a reality. I'm worried. I'm, I'm, not with Laura. <laughs> I think it's it's not going to happen because the states have invested far too much money into their adult use programs. They're not going to let that happen at this point. Agreed, Laura. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, Laura. It's not happening. Fuck schedule two. I didn't. I just said, are we concerned? And I'm saying that we're not. We're not concerned. Okay. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Coming to the stage next is a true California Renaissance woman that brings the damn data and not the damn drama. She's an educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. Up next, Liz Rogan. What you got for us? Oh, hello. Thank you so much for the great intro. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My story comes from New York. It's uh, from CNY Central out of New York State by Matthew Green. And the headline reads, New York State introduces first cannabis education campaign. So this really grabbed my attention because I'm a cannabis educator. So New York State has been issuing recreational cannabis licenses 
they began issuing them. And so while some jurisdictions have people have the right to opt out or not, they can't opt out of Governor Kathy Hochul's Cannabis Conversations campaign, which was launched yesterday. So this Cannabis Conversations campaign was developed by the Office of Cannabis Management, and they looked at education campaigns in other states with adult-use cannabis. And the other partners who are working on this are the Office of Addiction Services and Department of Health and the Governor's Traffic Safety Committee. So kind of gives you an idea who's authoring this, and it will come, it'll run for about three months. So this campaign will reach New Yorkers through public service announcements on TV, radio, public transportation, billboards, and social media. And Cannabis Conversations will educate the public about the law itself, including who can consume, where to consume, how to consume safely, keeping it out of reach of pets and children, and reminding New Yorkers about the risks of consuming under age 21 and driving under the influence of cannabis. So uh, direct quote here from the governor. She says, with Cannabis Conversations campaign, we're following through on our commitment to provide New Yorkers with the information they need to safely navigate the new cannabis law. She says, education is the best tool to help New Yorkers keep New Yorkers healthy as we continue to ramp up this safe, inclusive, and equitable industry. So that sounds sounds all nice and good, I guess. But I looked deeper into this Office of Cannabis Management, Cannabis Conversations website. And though I feel like a lot of the information is is pretty accurate overall, I uh, they do kind of get into social equity and some other things, which I would love some feedback uh, when other people have a chance to look into it. But it really does seem like a lot of it is kind of touting the governor. Like the first line in the social equity thing is it says, quote, thanks to the support of New York Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature, New York is establishing a national model, blah, blah, blah. So the thing is, it like really seems like she, they're giving her and the legislator a lot of credit with that. So Okay, great. The thing is, they're putting this stuff up on billboards, on the radio, on buses. You certainly can't with your cannabis business, so are your brands or anything. So um, good for them. I don't know. I think it's a little bit over the top, but I do think education is really the key to do it. And I think probably, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you guys say, have to say about this. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I think it's I, th- I think it's good that, you know, they're, they're putting the education out there. Um you know, we're still waiting on that $10 million that was supposedly spent on education uh, and education and disseminating of uh, uh, distributing that education here in California. And it just never happened. Nobody knows what happened to that fucking money. But um, yes, we you- do. Rico, <laughs> don't you remember they had the campaign uh, where they had the blurred out weed? Excited <laughs> weed. They spent like a million and a half dollars on that. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, if it's good information, it's, I guess it's good information, but I would be very, very, very wary of, you know, the government putting out good information like this. And especially if, if, if Hochul's just putting her name all over it, it seems like a flex to me. Well, it should have been before this time. New York has the most anemic medical program that I've ever seen in the country with so many people there. And actually, the numbers have gone down. Education should have started like years ago about, you know, from a public awareness perspective. And I would definitely I try not to be the negative Nelly. And so I'm kind of with you as well, Rico. Um, Is it just kind of like a publicity to be able to have clickbait and say, hey, I did this? Or is it really going to um, provide some sort of education um, that is needed? And I think it should have been done, you know, many years ago. But that's just my my point. Well, I, I kind of echo Roz, but I've been saying for a while that when states make the decision that they're going to legalize cannabis, 
they should start public exactly. education Bend. campaigns a, at least a year before they roll it out, before the products show up on the, 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 state, on the uh, shelves. And I, I think it's perfectly fine to say, to remind people you can't cross state lines. And, you know, they should be cautioned about impaired driving and they should be cautioned about edibles. You know, that would cut down a lot of ER visits. So I, I, I love this campaign. The, the, the reality is that New York needs to take a page out of what Colorado did when they first legalized it. They had a number of different uh, commercials that were all uh, public service announcements that really educated the general public on the do's and don'ts as far as cannabis consumption. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But you got some states like you just talked about Virginia. Do you think you would have a Virginia that does a public awareness campaign? We're not, we're not right talking now? about no. Virginia, though, Roz. We're talking about New York and Governor Ho Chi. Uh, I understand, but my point is that it's important that it get done sooner versus later. And is this is this something that's happening now? Is it for public, you know, publicity, or is it real? So, if you're waiting on Virginia, you might hold your breath. The thing is, if you look for where the funding came from and who wrote this, I mean, are the people doing it? It's obviously addiction transportation people, but I think you do have to be careful. Like Rico, they had a campaign here in Santa Barbara County where it was talking about cannabis, and I found that there was a lot of uh, misinformation in it. But d- looking at this, they did have information about edibles, like low and slow. So thanks, you guys, for all your uh, feedback on this. All right. Well, that's a good good wrap up. Thank you, Liz, for that story. Coming up next to the stage, we have a guest speaker. That's right. Her name is Jackie Subek. She's a good friend of mine. She's from the city of West Hollywood, and she is a licensed consumption owner in the city of West Hollywood. Jackie Subek, what do you have for us today? Good morning, everybody. Can we hear me? We hear you, girl. Yes, we can. Can everybody hear me? We hear you. Do you hear us? Excellent. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jackie Subek. I, as Jason said. Jackie, why don't you um, try leaving and coming, co- coming back? Let's, let's move on to the next speaker, and then and we'll come back to you, Jackie. Okay. All right. Well, coming up next, I guess we have Laura DeCaro. This badass cannabis mom is the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and founder of San Francisco's San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project and the organic source of the silkiest, smoothiest vocal cords in the Western Hemisphere. Coming up next, it's Laura DeCaro. Wow. Thanks for that, Jason. That was pretty fantastic. (laughs) Thanks so much. So today my story is actually out of Canada, Um, much like Jason's girlfriend. Vancouver dispensaries hope to spur legalization by selling magic mushrooms is the title of, of the article by Sarah Gurkowski for the Vancouver Sun. So it should be noted that psilocybin's been illegal in Canada since um, its listing on their Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in about 1974. But there are about four dispensaries now selling magic mushrooms that have opened recently in Vancouver with the hopes that they will lead to legalization similar to what happened with um, cannabis. So Dana Larson is interviewed for this article. Um, he is the owner of the Coca Leaf Cafe, um, which is on the outskirts of downtown. He's been selling uh, grow-it-yourself mushroom kits, um, dried mushrooms, chocolates, capsule forms um, since spring of 2021. And apparently he's been doing it without much interference from the locals. He also admits to using uh, psychedelic mushrooms himself, lauding a growing body of research 
that suggests psychedelics can ease anxiety, depression, and PTSD. He said the police have never raided or handcuffed anybody that's doing this, and I don't think they will. But the city has issued him a a cease and desist order for the illegal activity at the cafe. Although he says that the city knows full well what he's doing. And there is uh, evidence of some knowledge of that that is uh, set out in this article. So the city may know what's up, but they don't seem to really make it a priority. It also quotes the police department um, that says, look, that's not our priority. Our priority is enforcing, um, you know, um, actions against violent crime. And also last year, Health Canada began granting legal exemptions for psilocybin use to people with terminal illnesses or treatment-resistant depression. So um, I think it's really interesting because these guys are focused on a lot of what we kind of did. And Jason knows a lot about this. Well, you know, back in the day when we had, um, you know, the quote-unquote illegal dispensary system in California um, faced potential shutdowns by locals, but were essentially allowed to operate in large part because we made neighborhoods safer. We brought people safe product. We, you know, put tested product on shelves. Um, so I'm curious to hear what people think about um, psilocybin dispensaries in Canada. My name is Laura DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. So cool, Laura. That's like another reason to love Vancouver, which is already a great city. But I'm curious because they call it a cafe. Is that actually like consumption, you know, or is that kind of like, uh, you know, people just buy and leave? Did it provide any details about that? It did not. No, there's there's no um, detail on exactly what goes on behind the scenes there. But they do call it a medicinal microdosing retail operation. Now, 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 Laura, are these actually dispensaries in Vancouver that are selling the mushrooms, or are these totally separate businesses that are just affiliated with dispensaries? They're totally separate businesses. So they're not cannabis businesses. They're just um, standalone. It sounds like they're just standalone psilocybin shops. Very cool. I wonder how long those things will last in the provincial government of Canada. This is a really... Sorry. Sorry, Liz. Sorry about that. I just wanted to say it's a really cool story, but just, you know, because I had that education story. Like, what do you guys think? Is this going to run into a problem? You're not really educating people about um, mushrooms, (laughs) are they, you know, but we're talking about cannabis. I mean, I wonder if they are, because that might, that'd be a perfect setting. I'm wondering if they're, you know, it, it sounds like this guy's been pretty thoughtful about it. I mean, just kind of reading between the lines, but may, hopefully they're providing some level of education along with, you know, as they're uh, purveying these, um, you know, the mushrooms. Well, he's selling grow kits, so I would think so. I, and I would love to go in there and get a grow kit and learn how to grow. But I, I just, it, it's astounding how ballsy this is, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love it. I love it. I mean, it's, you know, it just harkened back to original dispensary shops. But it was it was funny. They said that at the shop, customers purchasing higher doses of psilocybin, they didn't say what lower doses or higher doses might be, but higher doses of psilocybin are required by the shop to fill out a medical form, which (laughs) that terrifies me as a lawyer. Um, Don't do that. (laughs) But, um, uh, But I thought that was really interesting. So he must be giving some thought to the patient's needs or the the individual consumer's needs. Laura, did they estimate what they think the size of the market share actually is in Vancouver or even in the entire country of Canada? No, not in this article. No, not at all. I think we need to go on a field trip. I want to check this place out. Uh, We are at the half hour mark. I don't think Canada will let you into Canada, Susan. Field tripping. 
<laughs> yep. Maybe tripping off we people. Okay, fine. Um, we're going to relight the room really quickly. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in the State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Sorry about that. I was trying to get Jackie back up. Um, Jackie Subek, are you there? All right. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Up next, we've got an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background. He's a fifth-generation Californian known to many as the freedom-fighting farmer's friend. Writer, brand consultant, event promoter, content ninja. This man does it all in the name of uncovering the international truths that the lamestream media does not want you to see. Eric Loretta, what you got for us today, my man? Gracias, Rico. That was a pretty lit intro. And I'm actually talking about farmers. Um, my headline is from Cannabis Now, and it's Face the Farmer, John Casali, Huckleberry Hill Farms, a second-generation heritage farmer in southern Humboldt County, shares his story from farming with his mom to imprisonment to building a successful brand. So I'd like to share this with folks who maybe never had the opportunity to be on a NorCal craft cannabis farm. These are places that combine some of the most beautiful scenery in the world with the greatest stash of genetics and most skilled farmers on the planet, period. I'm pulling some selects from the article, but if you have a chance, I encourage you to read the full piece. Um, quoting from the article here, in the mid-1970s, by the time John Casali was five years old, his mother had relocated them from his birthplace of San Francisco to a farm in southern Humboldt County. Growing their own food, fishing commercially, and logging or chopping firewood for others are just a few of the, of the ways that survived on the north coast of California. Cannabis was grown on the side. Many produce farms also uh, grew cannabis in a don't-ask, don't-tell scenario that served them well for years. That is, until the helicopters came. Uh, what the writer is talking about here is the campaign against marijuana planting, a.k.a. CAMP, thanks to the Reagan era, which brought that. What CAMP did was federally fund or subsidize a bevy, a bevy of local law enforcement for the failed war on drugs. CAMP created a cash flow to otherwise lowly paid law enforcement, causing them to become dependent and subsequently support the failed war on drugs. This only perpetuated uh, the ignorance surrounding cannabis. John was a casualty of that war. One morning, just after sunrise, 30 federal agents arrived at the farm. They never handcuffed the farmer or his friend and neighbor, Tom Wick, who were both 24 years old at the time. Rather, they handed Casali a little yellow speeding ticket, saying he'd be back if they needed to talk to him further. 14 months later, they returned, offering up a hefty $275,000 bail for Casali. My mom put up the house and everything else she owned to get me out of jail, Casali says. For the next three years, Todd and I drove from Southern Humboldt to the federal courthouse in San Francisco to fight for our freedom as cannabis farmers, as good people never want to hurt anyone. Some 100 supporters from Humboldt arrived for the sentencing that included mandatory minimum of 10 years, all the way up to life. Casali and Wilk surrendered in the summer of 1996, just a few months before California would vote to legalize medical cannabis in the state, the first to do so in the country. After serving eight of the 10-year sentence for good behavior, Casali was released to a halfway house in the Tenderloin, San Francisco's most notorious neighborhood. He then came back to Humboldt and began farming once more. The article get, then gets into what chal challenges the craft farmers 
are currently facing today. It cost me close to 500 to grow one pound, Casale says. To give an example of a neighboring ag situation, Napa Valley grape growers are taxed at 15 per acre and cannabis farmers at tax between 4,200 to 5,000 per acre. That's $1 per square foot, making cannabis the highest taxed agricultural crop in the world. When we lost the one acre cap rule the night before legalization, that put a nail in the coffin of most of our small farmers. The corporate farms, or those with the most financial backing, began buying up the smaller farmers' licenses, beginning what's called stacking licenses. One large-scale, well-funded farm nearby has maybe 20 licenses stacked right now. For the small cannabis farmers still standing, many feel that branding is the key to success in the new market. Personalized cultivars grown in the sun for years in loamy redwood soil can't be compared to indoor large-scale operations. Promoting this difference is critical, and branding Huckleberry Hill Farms cultivars has been the key to getting their uh, flower to market. Um, and then Johnny closes with this. Rose and I, that's his partner, are just grateful to be here another season, to be able to farm this land that my mother found for us and loved. Did I take one for the team by serving time in prison? Yes and no. But we're going forward with love and good attentions for this life we love on the farm. That's what it's all about. And that's what I got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for having me up. Wow. That was phenomenal, Eric. Thank you so much yeah. for such an amazing story and really sharing their perspective. That's crazy that it's taxed as the highest in the world. Yeah, and I think, you know, we get lost in these conversations and watch what's going on in Washington and testing labs. And that's, of course, all relevant. But you know what? We, like, let's talk about the people who actually grow this stuff, who take about this plant and the people who've cared for it for decades and what they're dealing with and all the shit they have to deal with to get us so that people in Washington can have their bullshit arguments. You know, let, you know, when you get back to the roots and really see what's happening and what they've paid for, then you put, you know, things become more in perspective. And if you haven't been to a cannabis farm in the Emerald Triangle, please put it on your bucket list. It is a very enjoyable experience. I, I, uh, I think there are some tours. Eric, yeah, do you know actually, any tours? Yeah, actually, well, Johnny is a friend, you know, and full disclosure, he's a friend. He's somebody I've worked with. I featured his partner, Rose, in, in a photography project I created called The Farm and the Feminine. And John is the first uh, license. You know, Humboldt now has license for tours, and he actually does have has a tourism license. You can go there and do a tour. Um, it, there's just no consumption, but hopefully things will change in the future. But um, there's uh, counties like Humboldt and Mendo, Mendocino are definitely developing really rigorous and vibrant tourism programs. So you'll all have a chance soon. This is an excellent story, uh, Eric, uh, uh, first off. And uh, second, like we need to do a much better job. We always say that we want to support the small farmers. We want to support uh, the originators in this game out here in California. We, we need to do a better job of, of marketing uh, who these people are and, and making sure we humanize them and get get these faces out uh, to the public to know this is where the great weed really comes from. This is where these cultivars come from. This is where these genetics come from. And it's not just some faceless uh, chat-run organization uh, where everybody gets their mass-produced booth. So critical, Rico. We, we are working on it. There's some really great pro things happening. We just need... It's so close, really. There's some really incredible projects. Mine's one small, but there's many. Some really significant... We appreciate stuff. what you're doing, man. And we are... We are going to feature them at the State of Cannabis in the Americas in June. But uh, let's keep moving. Uh, Jackie, are you back? Do we have you? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yep. Go ahead. 
Yay, thank you. Sorry about the disruption before. Uh, so uh, thanks, Jason, for that great introduction before. Uh, my name is Jackie Subek. I am a cannabis licensee in West Hollywood, California. Uh, and But today I am uh, reaching out to you guys to talk about the Los Angeles Equity Fund. Um, as many of you know, cannabis taxes are incredibly high, especially here in California, uh, where we start with uh, already a 25% coming from the state. The city of Los Angeles imposed a 10% tax on adult use uh, a couple of years ago uh, by, by ballot measure uh, with the city council. Unfortunately, that is too high. They put a 5% tax on medical. So there is a ballot measure that has been filed uh, to reduce the 10% adult use down to 6% for businesses that have uh, larger than three and a half million in gross revenues, and actually down to 2% for businesses that have less than three and a half million in gross revenues, which is wonderful because that gives the businesses in LA the opportunity to get started before the city of Los Angeles has their hand out. Um, the other piece of that is that the money that comes in, which is about $135 million annually, right now goes to the city's general fund. This this initiative would change that by taking away the money from the general fund, although leaving some of, a little bit of it there, and reallocating uh, it out to the community in to create the largest community reinvestment fund in the nation. Um, by and that sort of mirrors what we did with Prop 64 when we legalized in California, where we created a, a bucket of money that I believe it was 50 million dollars annually that goes it back into the community and it goes in through the form of grants in. in in California. So in the city of Los Angeles, it's going to happen in the form of different city departments uh, issuing those monies out. Um, and uh, we were, were looking forward to being able to do that because a lot of the uh, applicants, some social equity, some not social equity, really haven't had a chance to be able to get off the ground. And so this ballot measure seeks to fix all of that. One of the quick things I want to say is that it does not fix everything. It is not 100% perfect. But we are in a situation where this bill is actually could not happen any at any other time. We have a very unique opportunity. There's never been a tax reduction measure put out by a local jurisdiction. So we're very excited about this. We think it's revolutionary. And we also think this can be a model for other cities uh, in, in the uh, state as well as the country. Taxes on cannabis should not be so high that businesses can't afford it and customers are paying close to 40% at the register. So uh, again, what this will do is reduce the tax uh, adult use from 10 to 6. It will reduce the medical tax from 5% to zero, which which I think everybody believes uh, should is, is the right way to go. And um, we're having, uh, the whole thing is uh, under the LA Equity Fund, uh, which you can get to their website is laequityfund.org. You can learn more. There's a fundraiser happening tonight in downtown LA. There's information on the site about that. If anybody wants to donate or get involved, the dispensaries have been helping us collect signatures. We have to collect 65,000 signatures by April 27th. So it's a very short period of time. So we're looking for all the help we can get and support and understanding that, that if we get this passed, other cities are going to fall in suit because this is 5 million people we're talking about. So uh, it's a really good uh, ballot measure. I want to thank you for your time and for letting me share this with you today. And again, I'll just remind you to uh, check out laequityfund.org for more information. Jackie, do, do you know how many signatures have been gathered already? 
I actually don't because um, we've got a, a significant volunteer effort happening right now around the city. We have about 50 dispensaries that have stepped up to um, help us collect uh collect signatures as well as a community engagement program that involves everybody from the trans latina coalition to um the uh, um, uh, other community the community uh, columbia care and all kinds of other groups dr bronner's has come in so they're all helping collect signatures we just haven't actually um tallied them up yet it's a very fast moving uh, you know, initiative because we are, uh, because of the short time window. I, yeah, think, I, I think it's a great measure. Um, do, you, do you think it is a little too late, uh, too little, too late though? Well, I don't think it's too little, too late. I think that, um, that we, it, it's like, it's never going to get done. Let's face it. The city council expressed no interest in reducing the tax the DCR, which is uh, the governing body of cannabis in, in Los Angeles City, expressed no interest in helping us get there. So at the end of the day, it was about the voters and the uh, you know community members stepping up to do this. Um, the polling shows that if this gets on the ballot, it will overwhelmingly pass. There's no opposition. That's a, the other thing that I think is very interesting in this. This is a win-win for businesses and consumers. And it's just so rare that there's any kind of initiative that comes out that actually has no opposition. So we're really hoping that this, we can just get it on the ballot because we know if we get it on the ballot, the likelihood of it passing is gigantic. Jackie, I just wanted yeah. to really applaud you. Oh, sorry. I just was really uh, quick. Just re really applaud you for this effort. And you know what you're doing. It's so important. I think we have to remember that uh, cannabis laws and taxes are ever evolving. It like never stops. So I, I don't think there's ever too, something's too late. Things are going to, we just have, it's just pressure. Politics is, you know, like in everything else. So thank you for bringing this in. I definitely support this. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. No, Jackie, Jackie, yeah. I, I'm with you hundred percent. You know, the taxes are way too high. And the reality of it is when it comes to, when it comes to cannabis, the only people that should be getting high should be the patients and the consumers. Um, and, and, and also, too, that fundraiser tonight, um, if anyone uh, is interested, is from 6 to 8 p.m. here at Green Street at 718 South Hill Street in downtown L.A. I personally will be there as well. So you can come donate some money to this great cause as well as smoke some of the best weed in the world with me. We need to have electronic signature gathering. It's ridiculous that we have to spend so much money collecting signatures. But we're running really low on time, so let's keep smoking the news. All right. Well, coming up next, we have the beard himself. That's right. The man, the myth, the legend, Brandon Dorsky, better known as the beard. Court uh, heavyweight in, in the space, the CEO of Fruits Labs, as well as an intellectual and IP attorney. Brandon, what do you have for us this morning? Thanks so much for having me today. My headline comes from Palm Springs Desert Sun. It's Cochillan Business Park accused of illegally dumping cannabis wastewater. COO denied wrongdoing. This was a long article. I'm going to try and capture as much of the juice as I can. The developer of the Cochellan Business Park in Desert Hot Springs is accused of failing to live up to their promises to property owners and intentionally interfering with their enjoyment of the property, including plugging sewage lines of tenants and failing to build promised septic sewage systems, amongst other claims. A lawsuit was filed in Riverside County Superior Court last week that accused the Cochellan owners of trying to fleece their property owners for additional costs that should have been borne by the developers as part of the multitude of promises they made to recruit the tenants. 
Cochillan once promised to be the largest industrial cannabis park in North America on the basis of their plans for building roughly 3 million square feet for cannabis cultivation, processing, sales, and other uses on a 153-acre parcel on the east side of Indian Canyon in Desert Hot Springs. The other uses included a cannabis-friendly resort, a brew house, a bank and cash vault, educational center, private club, on-site wastewater remediation, and an amphitheater that would, quote, be the Red Rocks of the Southern California desert. Cochillan positioned its offering as a way for operators to save time and money by stepping into potentially turnkey operations, or at the very least, skipping the critical step of purchasing land and obtaining entitlements and licensing. The developers allegedly also promoted that they would handle the costs and logistics of utility infrastructure. Kenny Dickerson, Cochillan's CEO, said, quote, Cochillan has no equal. We have created a scalable and sustainable investment model that is poised to dominate and gather market share in the cannabis industry for years to come, end quote. At least three property owners purchased parcels at Cochellan in late 2017 and early 2018, and they disagree with Mr. Dickerson and have taken their dispute to court. That's Happy Hours, DHS Lot 11 Holdings, and Moon LEV Holdings. Their complaint, which includes 14 causes of action, includes claims for breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, fraud, and the real estate seller's non-disclosure of material facts, amongst other claims. The claims really center around Cochillan's allegedly fraudulent claims and misrepresentations about the project timeline and the property's infrastructure. The plaintiffs claim the park's infrastructure and amenities were supposed to have already been constructed, completed, and operational, but they're not. Quote, the development is still under construction and not even close to completion despite a number of promises to the contrary prior to each of the plaintiffs ever purchasing their property within the development, the respective amenities, and the entire infrastructure of the development would have been long since completed by now. Although the park is not close to completed, Cochellan is digging in for a fight. Their COO, Catherine Benetou, claimed to have not yet been served when contacted by the Desert Sun and said, quote, the lawsuit is a last-ditch effort by businesses that are trying to blame others after ignoring the agreements they entered into. The Cochillan Industrial Cultivation and Ancillary Canna Business Park is revolutionary because it is designed to be a center of excellence and innovation, setting a new standard of sustainability for California's budding cannabis industry. End quote. That sounded like a load of shit to me, and there's lots of loads of shit in this story, because they also backed up wastewater and allowed raw sewage to spill on some of the properties. I'll get to that in a second. But the plaintiff's position here is they were fraudulently induced to commit to the property parcels by representations that they would pay for utility infrastructure and that tenants would pay for their portion of metered utilities. But one of the plaintiffs contend that they were told they would have the service and water infrastructure over four years ago. Betatou claims the infrastructure is 90% complete. Beyond this infrastructure dispute, the lawsuit contends cannabis wastewater services were mismanaged and misrepresented. Cochillan claimed to offer the ability to legally dispose of all the parcel owners' cannabis wastewater, but when Moon LEV attempted to utilize those services, Cochillan illegally dumped the wastewater on a different parcel within the park. Cochillan's development plans included a site-specific plan for handling waste created on-site with a temporary on-site wastewater septic tank, but the complaint alleges they never built one and instead constructed an unpermitted off-site sewage facility adjacent to the park. In October 21, the plaintiffs received an off-site wastewater treatment and disposal connection agreement that required an additional $84,180 for a connection fee and then a $20,000 de deposit to Cochillan Energy, a separate company that was run by Kenny Dickerson. This was a little over 
double the $45,000 the parcel owners had been quoted as their maximum additional costs. Soon thereafter, the complaint claims that Cochillan instructed somebody to plug a sewage line, blocking the flow of wastewater from Happy Hour's sewage pipes, and then they parked a backhoe tractor over the manhole used to access the sewer line, left it parked for four weeks, which, quote, caused raw sewage and wastewater to backflow onto Happy Hour's property and into the building, significantly damaging Happy Hour's property, equipment, and materials. Sometime thereafter, Happy Hour received a citation and was fined $50,000 from the city of Desert Hot Springs. So in other words, this dispute is getting really shitty. Additional claims in the complaint cut to alter ego entities and a patchwork of companies allegedly designed to extract payments from parcel owners in excess of the fees they were originally quoted. Beyond the messy and murky situations facing the property owners, the promise of Cochillan as a whole appears to be in serious peril. The hotel, amphitheater, and brew house remain incomplete. Uh, It is unclear how many of their 43 parcels parcels have sold or are in development. Most of the property is still empty graded parcels, and there are currently three listings, all of which have had their sales price reduced in the last several months. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Now that's some shit. That is some shit. The city came out and fined, fined one of the companies while it sounds like there's maybe some corruption going on in Desert Hot Springs. Desert Hot Springs, that's all you need to know. (laughs) Brennan, Brennan, do you think that uh, being a lawyer, do you think we could classify that as shit weed? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't even, it sounds like there might never be weed coming out of this facility with all the shit that is spilling over on the property, literally and figuratively. It's a shitty situation to me. Well, let's keep smoking the news. We could go on on this one, but we need to move. Well, shit, Susan. You don't want to talk any shit, huh, Susan? I love talking <laughs> shit. <laughs> up next, <laughs> up next is an ex-NorCal cop and a dope dad who traded in his gun and a badge for a blunt and a notepad. He's now a security, a cannabis security consultant for CC Security Solutions and our go-to guy on law enforcement insight from an insider's point of view. Here to increase your chances of survivability is Chris Eggers. What you got for us? Rico, good morning to you and everyone else. God, I miss I miss you, man. Your intros are just amazing. Put a smile on my face. My article today comes out of uh, the Colorado Sun and discusses a new mandate that went into effect. Uh, sorry, since January 1st, Denver medical and adult use dispensaries have been required to have at least one safe for marijuana products and cash that is secured to the building in an area where limited access. But it's causing um, a bit of a riff and getting different opinions from various folks. Um based on the size of some of these dispensaries that may not be able to fit some of the safes. So dispensaries that do not have enough room for a safe must install alternative security measures, such as guard posts or other physical barriers to keep cars from smashing into the building, live remote monitoring of facility video surveillance with loudspeakers and alarm systems that can then voice down to perpetrators and offenders, or on-site security guards patrolling the establishment during non-business hours, according to the new rules. And the rules apply to Denver retail, medical, uh, marijuana dispensaries and adult use dispensaries, uh, and hospitality and sales businesses where people can purchase and consume marijuana on site. However, other businesses like jewelry stores, pawn shops, gun stores are not required to have these upgraded security measures. There's no requirement from the city, uh, to put those into, into place. And the city is claiming that because, 
Increased burglaries have been targeted against cannabis businesses, but there is no data to support that. Jewelry stores, pawn shops, and gun stores have also seen increase in uh, burglaries and robberies, so those folks are not affected. Um, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock signed a sweeping overhaul of marijuana regulations in April of 2021. He really leaned on Denver police and various working groups involving youth to come up with uh, sweeping overhauls, which this is uh, this is one of them. Um, and, you know, my, my, my personal take on this is, you know, I think it's really important to address various tr- crime trends uh, as they happen. But some of these retailers that have very small footprints can't afford or actually can't physically uh, come into compliance with these rules. Um, so that's really problematic. And I think that should have been considered uh, before implementation. But the city is saying that there's a grace period here um, and people aren't going to be getting fined yet. I'd be curious to know if anyone in the audience is from uh, Denver that can speak on this, that is actually boots on the ground over there, that might be able to add some clarity Um I'm really curious to hear what you think, but you know, some of these safes can be very, very expensive. And just FYI, I see a lot of gun safes in the cannabis industry. Uh, that's filled with, you know, it, gun safes are not meant to hold cannabis or, or cash products. I'll just leave that there. Um, you want to get a teal rated safe that can, uh, withstand various power tools, et cetera. But I see way too many gun safes in the cannabis space that are getting broken into within, you know, seconds and minutes. Uh, so be very mindful and careful of that. I'm curious if anyone from Denver is in the audience that wants to jump up on stage and share your thoughts. My name is Chris Eggers and I'm reporting for the state of cannabis news hour. Happy Tuesday. Well, Chris, well, Chris, I think one of the reasons that the gun safes are so frequently used in cannabis is because of uh, the, their their ability to stop airflow within them and basically kind of create basically the humidor environment within a safe. Yeah, but they, they can be broken into very, very easily. They're filled with um, like drywall, if you will. I, I'll send you some pictures, Jason. It's it's pretty scary. So, um, you know, although that's I didn't know that that's good to know, but they're definitely not intended to keep product and cash overnight. Chris, do, do you, what do you think about the, the window piece of this, uh, being able to see inside the windows? So, do you think that would help? Yeah, there's, okay, so there's a couple theories on that, right? One of them would be, um, you know, you don't want, I know there's ordinances where, you know, you can't have marijuana, marijuana visible from, uh, you know, the street or outside, but there's uh, natural surveillance is a septed principle that suggests, you know, being able to have clear line of sight would even have non-intended users of that space, somebody walking by, be able to see what's happening inside. So if there's a robbery or some other incident going on, the more eyes on that space, the better. But then that brings inherent risk because obviously glass is more penetrable than, than you know, uh, walls. Um, be, being someone who has uh, has had their dispensary both ways over the years, I'm a strong proponent of open windows. I've always, um, when when we have had it like super super blacked out and unable to see outside, it always pr- pr- created a lot of risk, especially upon the exit at night, especially with not knowing really what's outside or what's around the corner. So I'm a big proponent for open windows. Are you a exactly. for broken yeah. windows too, Jason? I'm only for broken windows if someone's been putting that shit on the glass. So there's, you know, different things to consider when you have, you know, windows or or boarded up or or walls. And, you know, uh, to, to Jason's point and Rico as well, I mean, you know, if you can't see outside, you're giving something up for that added air quotes protection of having walls. But uh, if you have clear line of sight and windows, then you are at more risk, obviously, of vandalism and various other damages. Chris, did the, the dispensary owners have any input to this legislation? And is it any way possible that they can get their taxes lower to try to accommodate this legislation? Great, great questions. Yes, there was input. This article is really, really long. Um, there are, is input from various retail owners that, you know, uh, are not 
super supportive of it just because of the logistics aspect of it. I didn't see anything about um, the second part of your question in, in this article, but definitely some folks are not super stoked about this this new rule and having to comply with it because it brings added costs. And then, you know, if, you're, if your footprint and your retail size is small, then you have to spend extra money on either guards, video surveillance, some other added security measures uh, to circumvent the safe rule. All right. Awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for that. Coming up next, we got Roz McCarthy. She's a Florida-based entrepreneurial badass leading the charge with the ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis. Also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Coming up and bringing us home, Roz McCarthy. Hey, thanks, Jason, for the intro. I'm going to bring you guys home hot and heavy, but this is important. Um, For those folks that have family or if you live in South Carolina, this comes from Marijuana Moment. It says South Carolina lawmakers hear Senate passed medical marijuana legalization bill in committee. And so South Carolina House Committee on Monday discussed a Senate passed bill to legalize medical marijuana in the state. With members hearing hours and hours of testimony from a wide range of voices, including military veterans and pharmacists. And this particular bill uh, was really pushed out by the Senate, by one um, guy in the Senate that really wants to uh, that really wants to see legalization happen. He says, I keep hearing that if we authorize medical cannabis, there's going to be an increase in impaired driving. We have had the experience at 37 states with this with with this decades of experience saying there is a negative correlation between medical cannabis laws and incidents of impaired driving. Um, And so he's also stressed that lawmakers should remove themselves from the medical process and let patients access a product in consultation with their doctors. So what I want to do is I want to go down and just tell you a little bit about what what the, the actual Senate bill says. It would allow patients with qualifying conditions to possess and purchase cannabis products from licensed dispensaries, smokable products, as well as home cultivation of cannabis by patients or their caretakers would be prohibited. Qualifying conditions would be cancer, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, glaucoma, Crohn's disease, sickle cell anemia, ulcerative colitis, um, uh, autism, nausea, in-homebound or end-of-life patients. The bill would also allow access among patients with any chronic or debilitating disease or medical condition for which an opioid is currently or could be prescribed by a physician based on generally accepted standards of care. Um, Going on further, under the bill, 75% of the tax revenue after expenditures would go to the state's general fund with another 10% going to drug use disorder treatment service providers, 5% going to state law enforcement, and the remainder going to cannabis research and drug education. Um, I'm concerned about, you know, how they're going to divvy out the tax revenue. I'll let you guys read the article. I'm Roz McCarthy coming to you from the State of Cannabis News Hour. South Carolina is trying to go legal, y'all. Thank you. No home grow is a no-go. Fuck that. Thank you, though, Roz. Uh, That was a really great show. We've reached the end of it. If you've missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city county state or country your addition to our show makes the state of cannabis news hour news you can trust you've been tuned in to the state of cannabis news hour where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way 
start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Enjoy your tacos responsibly tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Goodbye.